0: Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. It's Alison Savis, Client Portfolio Manager, with you once again. Well, another quarter is behind us, and as usual, in this quarterly market update episode, we're going to be analysing the state of the markets and Antipodes' bigger picture views on global equities and portfolio positioning. Joining to do just that is Antipodes' CIO, Jacob Mitchell. Welcome back to the podcast, Jacob. Thanks, Alison. It's it's great to be here. Jacob, in this update, we do want to discuss the risk of policy error from the major central banks and Europe's looming energy crisis. But first, let's talk about the state of the markets through the second quarter. Global equities have fallen 16% this year to June 30, as central banks set their sights firmly on reducing inflation, despite growing concerns around economic activity. Now, the last 20 years have been really been characterised by falling interest rates and inflation, low volatility around GDP, and where the Fed put came into play at the first sign of asset price volatility. But today, we have the Fed and central banks broadly in the West, tightening as economic activity slows, and we have rising inflation. So, is it fair to say we are now in a fundamentally different regime?
1: Uh, Look, Alison, there's quite a lot to unpack there. But yes, I think broadly, I think that is that is correct. Our our base case remains stagflation and far greater volatility in nominal GDP growth outcomes to what we've been used to. Um, But, you know, in the in the shorter term, a slowdown in economic activity or even a mild recession in the West can probably be offset by uh, a stimulus driven recovery in the East. So we, we should be able to avoid a global hard landing. You, know, on the, you mentioned inflation, on the inflation front, regardless of whether inflation has peaked, there are some, you know, it, is, it is still materially above the Fed and the ECB's targets, and we continue to see, for example, wages, rent, food, and energy prices. There are these structural elements, um, and that I think can prevent the Fed from you know, sharply reversing interest rate policy or QT. So in this this next slowdown, we're going to see a shift towards, I think, a lot more fiscal activism. You know, it really started um, with the exceptional Trump tax cuts and away from the you know just passive outsourcing of economic policy to central banks via QE and asset price stimulus that we've seen in the last couple of decades. Um, we expect the stimulus to focus on, um, on longer-term um, investment areas like decarbonisation, tech and supply chain, relocalisation, infrastructure. Um, however, look, in the short-term, governments are grappling with the cost-of-living crisis in, in the West, which will put further pressure on, I think, fiscal positions. So stagflation is our base case, but the range of outcomes around economic activity and inflation are, are very wide. And look, most importantly, I think, just expect greater uh, economic volatility, You know, which will require, I think, a contrarian mindset to navigate in terms of the markets.
0: Mm. And And I think the question that just about everyone seems to be asking is, do you think we've seen the bottom?
1: Look, the Fed has sent a pretty clear message to the market that its primary focus is to fight inflation and the market is pricing in a Fed funds rate of around 3.5% by the end of this year. As as discount rates have risen, the MSCI equity has fallen to around 14 times forward earnings from from where it started at around 19 times at the beginning of the year. So look, equity markets have definitely reset. Um, Arguably the US equity market is pricing in a mild recession whereas Europe and China are pricing in something much worse you know arguably closer to a hard landing. Also credit markets are are really priced for a for a recession broadly across the world. Um, US and, and European high yield spreads are already wider than where they were at the end of the last peak in the policy rate in late 2018 and we're only three months into the current tightening cycle. The credit market is saying that Western central banks have probably already over-tightened and or China has been too slow to, to loosen policy. But, you know, markets really go down in a straight line. There will be bounces along the way, and especially if we get some good news out of Europe or China, and we want to be positioned for this. Sentiment has arguably capitulated a lot more than earnings. So... You know the equity market may bounce even as earnings you know start to reset downwards simply because sentiment is so weak further you know, you've got forward forward inflationary expectations have started to fall and hence there's probably a point where the market will start to price in you know a fed pause so yeah you know, for now we're comfortable with our net equity at, at mid to high 70s in the in the antipodes Global Fund having closed out parts of our short book and tail risk hedges which performed well in the recent uh, dislocation now now given you know, the level of economic uncertainty and the higher discount rates i think we have an opportunity to reload we will have an opportunity to reload some of our shorts on and on the long side the market is going to be more focused on valuations than it has been over the past sort of decade you know investors arguably just need you know, need to be more selective in a in a backdrop of st- stagflation You know, know, in terms of equity, you know, different styles, growth and value styles will probably are more likely to become correlated in this type of environment, just as bonds and equities have, have, you know, have continued to be more correlated. Um, Finally, you know, we expect equity markets will become a lot more, you know, stock specific rather than driven by style and, you know, tight credit conditions will see the market, continue to favour these, you know, more resilient businesses with stronger balance sheets.
0: Now, let's talk about policy error. It's a key risk we've been talking about for a while now, whether that's the Fed or the ECB tightening too aggressively into slowing economies or China waiting too long to stimulate. We know that interest rates are a blunt tool. They, they will intensify any economic slowdown without addressing inflationary pressures that are driven by supply side issues. The ECB is, you know, arguably in an even more delicate position than the Fed, isn't it? Given that risk around economic activity is higher with a backdrop of war, and food and energy prices are particularly elevated. And you know, and further pain is likely as as Europe strives to decouple itself from Russian gas. So can you take us through your thoughts on the macro environment in Europe?
1: Look, you know, <clears throat> Europe Always sort of seems to, um, you know, catch, you know, catch, catch pneumonia when the rest of the world catches a mild flu. <laughs> um, the, the ECB is probably, you know, is going to have to take a softer approach. I think to into rate hikes, and to QE relative to, and sorry, into you know, and to to QT relative to the Fed because the risk of a recession is higher. The ECB will be mindful. You know, that, that aggressive hiking of short term rates will also put pressures put you know, pressure on peripheral eurozone spreads in countries like Italy, which has a, you know, and Italy you know, has this greater dependence on gas and government debt to GDP is relatively high. Um, on the fiscal side, you know, spending will focus on helping households with high costs and supporting
0: alternatives to gas. And, and what about the energy crisis itself? it could really intensify in the next six or so six or so months as winter hits
1: that's right and there's been a there's been a few developments on that front you know gas is once again flowing through the um, you know the Nordstrom 1 pipeline from russia to germany as at the end of last week uh, the pipeline was was operating at 40% utilization but fell again on another turbine maintenance issue uh, putin remains unpredictable to say the least but at the end of the day you know gas accounts for almost seven percent of russia's gdp and this could go to zero next year in the event of no russian flows. so there is self-interest in russia's part to maximize revenue today through you know through maximizing price through low volumes but you're right on our analysis europe's key energy pinch point is this next six or so months, with critical point being that Europe needs to build sufficient gas stores to get through the winter. Um, to put some numbers around that, Russia historically accounted for a third of Europe's total gas supply, and you know, the European Commission has directed its member states to focus on filling storage ahead of winter and, uh, and to cut gas usage by 15%. And in the, the immediate term, this could see some countries reducing heating and auctioning supplies to let's call it the most um, economically um, uh, value added parts of, of manufacturing as well as switching fuel sources where it's possible. Now, if we go back to you know, pre the war, Russia was historically pumping gas at a rate of around three and a half BCM you know, per, per month. And on our analysis, if Russia continues to pump at around one BCM, sorry, that number is per week, and if it keeps going at a weekly, that, at about one from three and a half down to one, then Europe may be able to avoid having to curtail demand via plugging that gap, the two and a half BCM per week gap with LNG. But uh, there is a, you know, there is this risk that Russia delivers substantially less than one BCM per week, which is you know, a critical level below which you start seeing significant supply demand imbalances at, most, at the most vulnerable countries like Italy and parts of Eastern Europe, around Poland, the Czech Republic, Austria, which lack the pipeline connectivity to receive LNG. So in the event of no... Russian gas, uh, you know, a 15% cut to European demand could mean up to a 30% cut in demand in places like Italy and 50 to 70% in Eastern Europe, because these countries are overly dependent or landlocked, um, to you know, know, overly dependent on Russian supply. So even if Russia keeps delivering at one BCM per week and we avoid the hard demand curtailment scenario... Attracting so much LNG flow will come at a, at, a, at a high price and obviously at a cost to Europe. Russian gas was historically delivered at closer to $6 uh, per MBTU. And on our analysis, higher gas energy prices and more LNG could be a 2 to 3% cost to the European economy. And industrial users will likely bear the brunt of this. Uh, so a lot to take in. But if we look to 2023... Europe will get some additional pipe gas from Norway and Algeria and more regas capacity is being built to, in, to allow you know, higher LNG imports for the block, um, especially in, in Germany. Um, now, if you, if you think about the global LNG market, LNG prices, prices today are close to $40 in MBTU. So um, and, and European gas prices are closer, closer to $50 in MBTU, which is meaningfully higher than long term contract prices that the likes of Japan, China, Korea have with um, major LNG exporters. So at current prices, there's a very strong incentive for those countries to sell their contracted volumes to Europe rather than taking delivery. Uh, Japan is already ramping up its nuclear uh, to you know, generation uh, to offset um, its reliance on LNG, China can use more coal and Korea uh, more fuel oil, which will allow these countries to divert some of that um, some of their LNG uh, to Europe. Now, these are the issue here is that these are long term joint venture contracts, and the suppliers have you know have power. So, but even assuming part of the profits on this sale will need to be shared with the Middle Eastern producers of LNG, the economic is incentive that is is there for that you know, diversion to take place. Um, look, lots of moving parts. It won't be easy for Russia to replace, Europe, sorry, Europe to replace Russian gas, but it, and it will be costly, but it is possible. The tail risk remains that Russia stops pumping gas completely and hobbles, hobbles the most vulnerable countries. Putin definitely has a powerful card to play if he feel, in the short term, if he feels increasingly cornered by the West. So we need to monitor that risk you know, very closely.
0: Now, some of our listeners will know that our global portfolios remain overweight Europe. So how are you thinking about this exposure?
1: This, you know, this uncertainty is why European equities are currently priced at just under 12 times forward earnings compared to closer to, say, 16 times over the last five years. On a one-year forward PE basis, European equities are almost 30% cheaper than than European equities are. You know, 30% cheaper than US equities. Whereas over the last five years, Europe has typically traded at a let's call it a 16 to 17% discount to the US. The market is you know is pricing in a tough scenario around energy and recession. You know, if 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 Europe can muddle through, then European equities look cheap. Our, Our global portfolios have around 25% exposure to Europe, but our exposure is focused on multinationals such as Siemens, um, SAP, Sanofi, Airbus, You know, leading uh, franchises that generate their revenue and profits globally. They aren't just dependent on the European economy and they are available at a discount relative to US or Asian peers because they are simply listed in Europe. Um, look, in terms of the the domestic-facing exposure we have to Europe it comes in three categories. First, you know we have our exposure to, to utilities, um, which have you know essentially a, you know a key number one they're relatively defensive. Number two, they have a key you know, key role to play in greening the grid and um, and decarbonising the you know the the uh, the power sector in Europe. This energy crisis should see Europe accelerates its investment in this area. So we're relatively comfortable there. Next, we have our exposure to European uh, financials, like um, you know, relatively pretty high quality uh, uh, banking franchises in Unicredit and ING. We have just over 3% across those two positions Uh, They are priced at distressed valuations, despite both having 20 to 30% of market cap in excess capital. Uh, Unicredit has a planned and sufficient capacity to comfortably return over 80% of its market cap in the next three years. And ING has a plan to return around two thirds of its market cap via a mix of dividends and buybacks. And look, we're managing the risk around uh, these positions via sizing and, and tail risk hedges. And finally, we have Tesco, which is taking share as grocery shifts online and has a a plan to protect its profitability by passing on some of its higher costs to to end customers and cutting its own costs. And it's priced at half the valuation of similar businesses like Walmart in the US and, and Woolworths in the Australian market.
0: Let's turn to China. We, we see policy error there as a key risk as well. Um, economic activity continues to be weighed down by the policy tightening from 2021, as well as the recent lockdowns. Now, policy has been loosening, but at an incremental pace. Do you think we'll see more stimulus?
1: Yes, we will. Um, look, the Communist Party will do whatever it takes to restore economic stability and, and as an internally funded economy, you know, with excess savings, they do have a lot of flexibility. In the short term, it looks like the worst of lockdowns have have passed, which is you know, is a positive. Commentators who track you know this closely suggest that four to eight percent of China's GDP remains in lockdown, but that's fallen from let's say twenty-five to thirty-five percent in April, um, and we can see look the data. Uh, from the data that mobility is really increasing whether that's subway movements, airline, intercity movements and cargo freight. Um, look on the on the COVID front, mass testing centres have been rolled out at large popular cities so that infections can be identified quickly and, and to cut that transmission chain quickly which can help contain future outbreaks. Uh, this provides, I think, a pathway for China to, to continue to ease restrictions while there's been progress towards also sort of improving um, new vaccines, including a domestic mRNA ver- yeah, version and a locally produced uh, version of the BioNTech vaccine. Um, so look, you know, our, our view remains that a sustained easing and lockdown- lockdowns can act as a catalyst to increase the pace of stimulus. Which can boost, uh, let's call it, boost economic activity going into twenty twenty three, and potentially offset, you know, the slowdown that we're seeing um, in the West. You know, look, I think investors need to be mindful uh, that China has run tight policy relative to the West, and so has, you know, has a degree of fiscal and monetary flexibility. Um, Retail sales. You know, are down one. You know, just over one percent, one and a half percent this year, after slowing meaningfully last year, and property sales have fallen more than twenty percent over last year. But you know, China doesn't have the inflation issue that is forcing policymakers to tighten in the rest of the world, and that's I think just an important difference. Um, and we, you know, we're starting to see. The Chinese banks provide support to the property sector, and you know, and we're seeing interest rate cuts. And we think you know, you'll start to see additional stimulus, which will focus on a combination of consumption subsidies, subsidies for lower income households, and look, investment stimulus focused on China's you know decarbonisation agenda.
0: Mm. And how big a risk are the recent headlines around Chinese home buyers refusing to pay mortgages on on unfinished apartments? You know, can this trigger a systemic risk in the banking system via rising non-performing loans?
1: Yeah, look, it's it's a, it's an important it's an important point in the sense that you know we look. The simple answer is we don't think it will, but um, our listeners need to understand that the way the market operates in China um, is different to the West, um, and that is. You have to take your mortgage relatively early in the construction process, and that that mortgage, you know, a large part of that, goes to the developer and actually funds the the build. So you can understand, you know, on the you know on the margin, you know, if you're waiting for your apartment to be delivered and it's been delayed, and you're paying your mortgage, you'd be pretty pretty upset. So, but just to sort of quantify it, um, you know, that the, the, there is know yeah, what we've seen so far across certain developments there's roughly you know um, 300 unfinished projects and taking a sample of some of the major cities delayed projects account for less than one and a half percent of total projects under construction so even if we assume this spreads nationwide and halts projects of all distressed developers which is an extreme scenario the impact we think the impact is around 2% of outstanding mortgages or 700 billion RMB. China's banking system has around 10 trillion RMB in excess capital. So at this stage, it can cope. But there is pressure on the government to sort this out. And you know, we, we'll, we will continue to follow the situation closely.
0: And aside from central bank policy era and Europe's energy crisis, are there any other tail risks you're monitoring?
1: Yeah, look, it's a good question. Um, given the interest rate cycle, you know, we're watching economies with elevated any economy with elevated household debt and and elevated property prices, you know. So, where disposable income is going to be very sensitive to floating rate mortgages. Um, so, that, you know, that that includes um, Australia, but also Scandinavia, the UK, and Canada. Um, we're also thinking about you know implications of a, a potential unwind in um, You know, in credit for debt dependent private asset markets, you know, corporate credit, the average state of corporate credit has deteriorated over time. Um, Buyout valuations uh, are likely really facing mark to market hits as asset valuations reset and funding costs are rising. Any credit rating downgrades will impact financing availability and costs in the leveraged loan market. And these, you know, these bonds loans tend to be owned by pension funds and life insurance companies rather than banks, um, which you know do remain pretty well capitalised in in most regions. So the systemic risk is in is, is in a very different lies in very different um, parts of the balance sheet than it did um, in the you know the global financial crisis.
0: Okay, Jacob. Now to sum this all up, given these broader market views. Where are you seeing opportunities, and how are the global portfolios being positioned as we move into the third quarter?
1: Yeah, look, we we continue to favour market leaders that are in a better position to manage in this, let's call it tougher or more volatile environment of slowing growth and you know high inflation and and and, and let's call it a, a rapidly evolving landscape. Um, multiple dispersion still remains. Elevated and the mark at the market level, so we're still finding opportunities across regions and sectors. Uh, the value index is heavily skewed to financials and away from tech, and with multiple dispersions so high, we don't have to wed to. I don't think you have to wed you to you know the traditional cyclical value sectors to build you know a pragmatic value portfolio. Um, you know we have. 30% long exposure to emerging investment cycles across decarbonization, infrastructure, connectivity, and compute. And the, the extreme sell-off that you've seen in the, the tech and growth complex, uh, whilst we're still underweight, you know, US mega cap tech and internet, you know, we are starting to find some opportunities on the margin, you know, particularly around um, ERP or, you know, inter- enterprise resource planning software, database robotic process automation these are all longer-term trends which we think are going to be more resilient um you know as a part of the move to the cloud it's all about a, a cost saving and a productivity decision which ultimately even in a tough economic environment is going to happen uh, you know, we we remain sort of underweight the us domestic cyclicals which we we think will bear the brunt of the current cost of living crisis um, Look, we've also, um, also pared back some of our overweight to the US natural gas producers, which have been a meaningful contributor to recent alpha. And for now, you know, US gas remains captive um, over time. They will build out LNG export capacity. Look, we, we, we will look for re-entry points because we think these companies have a, a critical role to play in the longer-term energy transition and ultimately are going to be part of the solution for Europe. Uh, look, in Europe... The, the broad focus of the portfolio um, is multinationals. And if Europe can, can muddle through without falling into a deep recession, then still, these stocks do look cheap. Uh, we've rotated some of our exposure in, in European financials into US financials, given the recent sell-off in US banks on macro concerns. Uh, but at current prices, the market appears to be pricing in an overly pessimistic scenario around credit risk um, in the US given corporate household balance sheets look okay and unemployment is, is still low. The US is further through arguably further through the tightening cycle relative to Europe and US banks gen- generally get some benefit from rising yields. Yeah, with regards to China um, the timing around a reopening is, is, is still unclear but the situation is moving in the right direction. The market isn't pricing in reopening, policy change, or the potential for more stimulus. China does have fiscal monetary policy flexibility while the West is is slowing and tightening. Once China moves through this lockdown, there will be a real divergence, I think, between the economic cycles relative to the West. And today we have, you know, you have an opportunity to invest in some great businesses at attractive valuations which won't be, you know, will be relatively non-correlated to Western economic outcomes. So we're comfortable with our exposure. Uh, you know, it is, it's part of our process to look for clusters of non-correlated alpha, and that's what we see in China. Um, and very non-correlated to the broad ACWI benchmark, uh, which is so dependent on you know, Western, the Western economic cycle. Um, you know it 's focused on on domestic exposures that are going to benefit from a combination of a cyclical rebound but also um, you know structural consumption trends and you know and finally, just in regards to the us it 's still our single single largest exposure at roughly forty percent long and whilst we have been you know, we 've been overweight global cyclicals in that market, given the correction in both the growth and the domestically exposed equity, US equities, you know, we are finding, you know, more opportunities on the margin to deploy mm-hmm. capital.
0: Thanks, Jacob. Look, we've covered a lot of ground today, um, so we'll have to wrap it up here. But as always, thank you very much for your time and your insights.
1: Yeah, thanks, Alison. It's, uh, thanks for the insightful questions as always. And uh, and thanks for the opportunity to, you know, to, to provide the update to our listeners.
0: For any further information on Antipodes, head to our website, antipodes.com, and you can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. In our next episode, I'll be speaking to the CFO of German-listed energy giant RWE, so make sure you subscribe so you'll be notified when that episode goes live in a few weeks' time. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions.